1: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nigut. Uh Boy, another busy day in politics, and we'll talk politics in a couple of minutes. But before I even introduce the panel, a shout out to our listeners in Cartersville, Georgia. Trevor Lawrence just clobbered Alabama in the national championship game last night. Kevin Riley, editor of the AJC, you're here. This is a kid, he's a true freshman he had played last year he was playing at cartersville high school sitting at home watching the national championship game and last night he played a spectacular game. Oh, so we send our congratulations to all the right, folks I, in Carter's. I
2: gotta believe Bulldog fans enjoyed seeing Alabama <laughs>
1: lose that <laughs> way. But, I enjoyed yeah.
0: it. I enjoyed
1: it. Yeah, Mary Margaret Oliver uh, is with us. Of course, she's a state representative uh, from Decatur. And Mary Margaret, just before we were coming on, you were talking about you. What did you say about Trevor Lawrence? He is
0: what a cute kid, with a cute <laughs> page boy. I was, I was just blown away. It was a fun game to watch.
1: I uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so you've now heard that Kevin Riley, editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us. So is State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver. Uh, they are joined by Audrey Haynes. She teaches political science at the University of Georgia, and uh, you run the Applied Politics Certificate Program there, which trains your students for careers in politics.
3: Yes, we do. Go dogs.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, Ed Lindsay is with us today, too. Former state representative from Atlanta, now uh, a partner at um, the world's largest law firm, Denton's. Oversees the uh, government relations, government affairs yep. uh,
4: department here in Georgia. Hi, Ed. Hello. And uh, on behalf of my mother, uh, a 1946 graduate of the University of Alabama, Roll Tide. even though there was a deep, deep ebb yesterday.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Mary Margaret, let's start with some news that truly is breaking news. As we were sitting here preparing to go on the air, you received an email as a member of the state legislature from uh, the Speaker of the House, David Ralston. Uh, Do you want to read what he says, or do you just want to summarize what he says? You want me to do it?
0: Speaker Ralston has appointed a special committee on access to quality health care. This is an opportunity to jump off from the Rural Development Council, deep dive into rural health care issues, which are very severely problematical for our economic development, and our citizens of Georgia. I have been, as uh, some of you may know, fairly uh, discouraged, uh, that's, that's a mild word for how I felt, about the Republican leadership failure to use the opportunity to take, without any obligation, $9 million a day for Medicaid expansion. And the discussion has always been, well, we're going to do something. We're going to do something. And I've been very, very reluctant to believe that. But this email, because it comes from the most stable leader, the the one we know Mm -hmm. um, in the Capitol, the Speaker, gives me some hope. It will proceed.
1: I'm sorry. He says – let me read a bit of what he says and then jump in. For a number of years, legislative proposals to reform access to quality health care and review the regulatory environment of health care facilities – have been introduced in the Georgia General Assembly. He does say that the House Rural Development Council looked at some proposals. Then he goes on to say, it is my view that we must have the proper forum to discuss and consider any proposed changes. I believe this issue must be given deliberate and careful examination and that it can be done within the 40 days of the session. And then he names the members of the committee. Now, I'm not sure, Ed, as I read this, excuse me, is he just talking about rural health care or is he opening the door for what could be some version of an expansion of Medicaid?
4: Well, you know, we're going to have to wait to see that. Uh, what I am most um, happy about is to see who's the chair of that, Richard Smith, who also chairs the House Insurance Committee. Uh, he is a um, deep thinker. He uh, likes to see policy implemented. He's very good at coming up with um, with different ways to get to the end. Uh, and he has been very much involved in trying to figure out ways to do what Mary Margaret's talking about through perhaps some kind of medical waiver similar to what's taking place in Arkansas, Wisconsin, Indiana, and other states. And to have somebody appointed like Richard Smith uh, to chair this committee uh, give, should give us all some hope uh, that uh, that they're going to take a serious deep dive into trying to get something done.
1: Kevin, we know that during the campaign, uh, the um, uh Governor-elect Brian Kemp did eventually uh, say that he would look at some form of waivers to uh, expand Medicaid in Georgia. The, The point, though, is we don't really know. Quite what he has in mind. Right, in that waivers. Respect. The
2: word waivers <clears throat> has been used to sort of as an umbrella term for uh, for almost anything. But more important, and I, I think Representative Oliver can help us with this. The governor won't have anything to do with that decision. Am I right? I mean, didn't didn't Governor Deal give up that power to the legislature? Uh,
0: there was a bill passed, and I, I know that the Kemp folks are talking about whether or not their process involves them compl- completing the waiver and applying it first, or whether they go to the legislature. First, I think they will should go ahead and prepare a waiver which will expand the money that we get in Georgia, which is the definition of a waiver. Do we get more money to serve more people? Um, so that is an issue. But I don't believe that, it, that the ac- effort has to begin with the General Assembly. I think it could go either way. Now, you know, I could be proven wrong about that. The other interesting thing about the people he's appointed Bill, which is interesting to me, there are no urban people on it, except Sharon Cooper from Cobb County, who's vice chair. The rest of the folks are are fairly rural people. So so maybe he is
1: looking specifically at uh, recommendations from the council that looked at at rural health care and is going to go stick with that, that maybe we shouldn't read in a broader implication to all of this. I want to
0: read in a broader implication. (laughs) I do not want to have it only focused on CON.
4: Well, and I think that's important, is to try to come up with some type of waiver system. Uh, But you're quite right uh, that in 2014, I believe the bill was House Bill 990, uh, that basically is going to require any additional state funds to be utilized uh, toward a Medicaid expansion. There has to be uh, a sign-off by the legislature.
1: Audrey, um, this is an issue. That we just we have been dealing with Medicaid and whether it should be expanded in Georgia ever since ACA was passed. Really, um, it's been with us as long as the fight for a religious liberty bill has been around. And yet it just continues to stall and stall and stall.
3: Well, and this may be a point where we see um, you know, it's sort of crested enough discussion and uh, enough admittance that there are some serious issues. And those issues have an an impact. and they're sort of like that 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 wave that expands. it's starting to touch on people who um, have a voice and have some influence. And it's good to see Speaker Ralston, um, who seems to sincerely care about uh, the legacy he leaves in terms of his leadership on the state. And uh, I've had him come and speak to students and he listens. He listened to the students. And that was a very important thing. And they talk about um, these issues. And health care is the number one issue in the country right now. He not also, just
0: Fannin County has a struggling hospital. I mm-hmm. have a home in Fannin County. I read the newspaper. Uh, Speaker Ralston understands both the issues of rural health care delivery system, the, the challenges there, and the status of our state budget and the need for Medicaid monies.
1: So uh, here's the nice thing about this uh, uh, email that the speaker sent out and trying to interpret what exactly he has in mind. He's our guest on Political Rewind tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Speaker Ralston will be coming in uh, to talk with us live. Jim Galloway and I are going to interview him, and uh, we'll learn more about this and about a lot of his other priorities in the session to come, Kevin. Right.
2: uh, We always have him (coughs) in at the newspaper, and we find the same thing, that he is— He's informative and interested and, I think, very knowledgeable on things. I hope you'll mention that Representative Oliver referred to him as the most stable of the leaders at the state level
0: the best the most excellent the most stable all of them
2: yeah someone from the other party i mean that's really something
1: isn't that so yes it is and again (laughs) just to uh, make sure you understand the promotion involved here uh speaker ralston will be our sole guest tomorrow on uh, political rewind and mary margaret i want to bring you in on one of the subjects that we will certainly be talking with him about um james salzer who writes on budget matters for the AJC uh, at every session and beyond, had a pretty good piece and a pretty comprehensive piece on the challenges that confront budget writers, both out of Governor-elect Kemp's office as well as the legislative leaders, this coming fiscal year because – We're not sure where the economy is headed in the year ahead, whether we're going to face a possible recession, whether tax revenues will be down. It may be a little trickier to set a budget revenue, an estimate for the revenues. And if that's the case, then it's trickier to figure out how you spend your money, right?
0: I've been on the Appropriations Committee for decades, and every year it's a conservative voice that comes from the leadership, whether it's Democrat or Republican, every year. This year is unique um, because we really are due, if you look at the economic forecasters, we're due for a recession, probably a smaller recession, probably not a... A, a horrific recession that we had uh, a decade ago. But it's also true that in 2018, we were talking about how much money is Georgia going to get based on the implementation of the federal tax law. Last year, we were thinking, oh, it could be $600 million. It could be a billion. Now we're talking uh, a totally different train of thought. The volatility of the stock market, where we all have lost money, a lot of money this last six months, based on what I think the chaos of the presidency's office in part, Uh, this year we have a totally different tone. Last year, we were going to benefit from the federal tax money, we being the state of Georgia. This year, what's going to happen is so unknowable based on the volatility of our economic uh, forecaster and based on the chaos that's intentionally created on a daily basis by President Trump.
3: And, and that new the, the all of the new ramifications of the, the the tax law that was passed are really unknown I have several friends who are tax accountants and they're still working on understanding what all the content is it's but we did
0: believe that Georgia would benefit with more money on some short-term basis.
1: Ed, you know better as well as anyone, uh, Mary Margaret being the other one in the room who really uh, has dealt with this, you know how crucial it is to see the number,
4: the the growth number
1: that the governor sets for what he believes the growth will be in the state economy.
4: Yeah, a lot of folks don't really understand how it works. Basically, the, the governor gives us the number. Uh, 3
1: percent, 4 percent, whatever whatever. the number.
4: The governor gives us the number, and then it's incumbent upon the legislature uh, to have a budget that's within that number. And it can be tough. And sometimes, particularly when it starts going down, I happen to have been appointed to be the chair of education appropriations the year that – that uh, the wheels came off in 2009. Wouldn't you and, like
2: to be it now when you're yeah. going oh, to give $5,000 to every teacher, right? Yeah, a lot right? more
4: popular. I was just trying to keep uh, nurses in schools that year. <laughs> uh, but we had to face the situation. Mary Margaret was there as well. Twenty-one. We went from a $21.2 billion budget in one year to a $17.4 billion budget. Uh, that was rough times. Now, we won't face anything like that, even if we have a mild recession. Um, it, but that is going to be something that, that folks are going to have to—
1: I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, uh, Ed. Uh, uh, Kevin, you mentioned it. Adding to the issues of how the budget is going to be resolved this year are the campaign promises that Brian Kemp made very dramatically. And, and, you know, during a campaign, uh, we on this show said pretty smart to promise teachers a big raise, $5,000 raise as a campaigner. Now the legislature may have to move forward and figure out a way to pay for that. Nobody said it had to happen in the first year or even two years, but he has set a mark that legislators
2: are going to have to deal with in some way. Well, I also, he'll have to send a signal, right? How important is that to him? And what's the sense of urgency? Does he want it all in one year, over four years? Next week. I don't think he's going to back off. I would be yeah. very, uh, to, to me, that's a winning issue for any governor. I, I don't know what our legislators think. Well, it, also, it's, it, it, a,
0: it's a winning governor. issue. And also, you, you look back the last few years, we gave law enforcement 20% increase. We gave caseworkers 20% increase, both of which I was happy to support. I was chair of the Education Appropriations Committee when Zell Miller was. Uh, and the the he gave 6% every year to teachers with a 24% increase in salaries and that was during the good times
1: he took the teacher pay from one of the lowest in the southeast to the highest in the at least the southeast right oh yeah.
0: it, and brought us into the mid range and we've yeah. lost that status we will uh, give teachers a raise, my prediction is, although I'm, you know, way low on the power pole over there, but it, we will give them a teacher raise. I do believe it'll be over years, and my, I have three school systems, Decatur, Atlanta, and DeKalb, uh, are going to be complaining wildly to me that they are the ones who are going to end up paying for this, and they're going to want to cut out the bus drivers and cut out the principals, and there'll be a whole lot of in-the-weeds discussion about who gets how much the first year.
4: Yeah, but I agree with Mary Margaret. It's going to happen. I mean, uh, whether it, it, and, and it's something that that, that that it's time to happen in order to, to get our teachers back into that mainstream area uh, around the country in terms of of teacher salaries and whether it happens over one year or two years or four years even it they need to be moving in the right direction i will correct one thing kevin told me earlier wouldn't you like to be there now actually it was a I felt, i'll tell you right now it was great to be there during a bad recession because so many people would come into me with good ideas for programs <laughs> and someday when we have yeah. money I, we ought to look at that it, it is and, easier and to say it no. was a whole lot easier to say no and i had people who followed me start to complain to me going, Edward, you said everything was a great idea. <laughs>
1: Audrey, I think what Ed Lindsay said is so true. In flush times, you better figure out a way to meet the needs that your constituents and the important forces in the state come to you and ask for budget. When you don't have the money, everybody gets a no. <laughs> absolutely,
3: absolutely. But right now, during flush times, you do have a lot more work and decision-making to do, and you you're going to, you're going to make... Some people mad, and yes. and that will come back to you. So,
1: Audrey, uh, this just to put it in, in to quantify it, uh, a five thousand dollar teacher raise adds some eight hundred million dollars plus to the budget. And one of the uh, things that I'm hearing from from some quarters is a concern that people in your in the higher education community are going to be um, miffed, little distressed. Because the pot of money would go to uh, teachers K through 12, where do uh, where where do uh, higher education uh, faculty and others stand?
3: Well, we're already sort of in that situation where there's some uh, there's some discontent among uh, um, varied universities because some schools have uh, had access to their own pots of money where they were able to give raises to. Uh, professors and staff um, whereas others were not and that's been a a bone of contention Um, but we have had over the past few years uh, some some raises I remember when Ed was in there and I spent (laughs) five years without a raise um, but there were people who were in um, education who were getting furloughed so it'll be a point of discussion but we do have a very healthy uh, University of Georgia system
0: yeah We'll also hear from the pre K teachers. We'll hear from the lunchroom workers. It'll be a, a detailed discussion, but teachers will get a good raise this year.
1: That's right. my prediction. Yeah. You heard it from Mary Margaret Oliver. What's that uh, phone number where they can call you?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's on the web, the World Wide Web.
1: I'll tell you what, let's do this. Why don't we get a break out of the way or a little earlier than usual uh, so that we can shift gears? we got a lot more we're going to talk about on today's show. But you know what? For Robert and for Tom and for Tyler, who are always you know, saying, get the break in, get the break in, here it comes, guys, a little early.
5: You know, selling a car can be a hassle, but donating it is a whole different story. Let us take it off your hands or off your driveway and turn it into public radio and maybe even a tax deduction. Hi, I'm Kyle Rizdal, the host of Marketplace, and here is how to donate. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org cars. And thanks. My name is Chuck Reese. I'm the editor of an online magazine called The Bitter Southerner. I've seen decades of misconceptions about the South from the Beverly Hillbillies on down. But in my new podcast with GPB, we're going to challenge those stereotypes and paint a very different picture of the American South. Join me for The Bitter Southerner podcast. Details are at BitterSoutherner.com.
1: Welcome back to Political Rewind. Of course, you can watch us right now. Join the people who are watching us on Facebook Live. Go to the GPB news page on Facebook. You'll find us there. One other quick programming note. Uh, Brian Kemp is sworn in as Governor of Georgia next Monday. We're going to be broadcasting the entire ceremony, the event, live here. It starts at 2 o'clock. And we're going to do a pre-show at 1 o'clock. We're going to do a special edition of... Rewind. We'll talk about what the governor's priorities may be, some of the issues he'll face. Dr. Andre Gillespie from Emory will be here for that show. Loretta Laporte, the Republican strategist, will be here. Uh, Jim Galloway will be here. So that's at one o'clock. You can listen to that show on GPB radio around the state. You can also watch that show on GPB TV and then we'll transition right into the 2
2: o'clock inauguration. Bill, I noticed that the four of us who are here and we're fairly routine guests never get to be on TV. Is Are we not good-looking enough? Is that the problem? <laughs> uh, um, I uh, think it's I've been on TV. I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Good, I, good looking. She's not good-looking, looking. but I was she is the best-looking one among us. <laughs> <laughs> no, from. no. Cameron. Two two of, us. No. two of us are Emily not good-looking <laughs>
4: enough.
2: <laughs> I think
1: all you have to do is look at me to recognize that looks have nothing to do with who gets on <laughs> radio or TV. One other, we're going to have a lot of time to talk about the Kemp agenda uh, throughout the session, but I want to, as long as we're talking about budget, I do want to address one other area uh, here, Ed. Uh, Brian Kemp suggested during the campaign that he thought it was time to call for a constitutional amendment. That would cap how much spending can be increased in a given year because he also wants to cut the state's top tax rate. There are a lot of people on both sides of the aisle who worry a bit about getting into dangerous territory of putting limits on how much money a state can uh, spend
4: yeah i mean his concern is 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 trying to put some type of uh, of additional fiscal responsibility in the state and i think now that he's in office you know he can remember that he has total control over that he he gets to set the number uh, as we discussed a little while ago in terms of how much the state can spend each year so he has a, a lot of authority and whether or not he pushes for that that's a constitutional amendment that goes through the legislature or whether or not he simply decides that it's better for him to do it uh, from the governor's chair, which he has total authority to do so, uh, is yet to be seen.
3: Um, I would mention, too, that almost every bit of research that can be found on the impact of, of imposing those caps is has an negative consequences total
0: bad idea yes I mean, totally a bad idea i don't
2: understand why any i mean i get a campaign promise that that is out there you can talk about how i'm never going to let them increase the budget by more than this whatever he was saying but why would a governor agree to limit the enormous power he has to in the end right it completely control, yes. the budget, 100%. control and at
0: the, at the end of every budget tough negotiations the governor again uses that power. He makes the total decision. Am I going to increase the revenue uh, projection? Estimates. Am I going to reduce the revenue? He has total control. This is a very bad idea, particularly yeah. for our, our state, which the... Very conservative, very good ratings, very good financial management. Not not the yes. management I yeah. would apply every single day, but it's good financial management. So Audrey, we, let we, me do, go we back. do enjoy a AAA rating. Well, I was okay. going to say, why a, is
1: this about? What what do the studies show about why this is a bad so, idea? So
0: generally, you lose your
3: flexibility. If we go through a recession of some kind, there are times when you want to invest in your your state, and you have to be part of the engine that drives the 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 potential recovery. So if you create a constitutional limit to that, then you yeah. are you're basically shackling yourself so that you can't
0: act. And we can well, use the it, teacher's salaries as a yeah. great example towards the end of the budget negotiations in 2019, where I will not be in the room because only Republicans and only men are in the room and well not so not bitter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, they will they will say to the governor, Governor will give you the you know we'll give you a little bit more money on the teacher. Just give us a new rep. that's what Going to happen in the well, back room somewhere.
4: The, the, like I said, the, bo- the bottom line is, and it's not just what I said a moment ago in terms of that initial number, but the governor also has total control at the back end because mm-hmm. he has a line item veto. That's right. Uh, so if the governor feels that uh, that the <clears> legislature has <throat> been too generous, even within the time, even within the, the, the cost limits that he has set. Uh, he can still uh, pull back further by simply exercising his line, line item veto. And I think uh, once uh, this governor is in there, he, he sees that full extent of that power. Uh, that I, I don't believe we're going to see a whole lot yeah, of that Kevin,
1: issue. Kevin, we should say this was something it was talked about on the campaign trail. Candidates uh, bring up a lot of ideas on the campaign trail. But we should point out we have not seen uh, Brian Kemp move forward in any way, suggesting he is actually going to introduce legislation of this sort. We'll see. Maybe he will. But on the other hand, we don't want to create the wrong
4: impression today.
2: And I think if we made a list of all the things he promised, the teacher raises would be very high and this idea would be very low. And he'll have to pick priorities as a governor.
4: Well, one is a substantive issue, and that's $5,000. The other is a procedural issue. And the fact of the matter is I do expect this governor to exercise a lot of fiscal restraint. But I think he He's going to discover that he can do that from the governor's chair already. All right.
3: Yeah, we have a culture of that, too. People yeah. recognize its value. Um, and, are, you know, ultimately, it is your culture and your consensus that drives a lot of decision making. Yeah. and And Georgia is known for that.
1: All right. um, Let's move on. Uh, Mary Margaret, I sent you a note yesterday saying, hey, you're the legislator at the table on the show. What are the things that you're really looking at for the upcoming session? And, of course, the budget is one of them, given that you're on the Appropriations Committee. But you said you really want to look at election reform. Talk about that a little bit.
0: We've already talked about the two major issues the budget and health care. Uh, election reform has to be part of our very high priority of attention. The, everybody agrees that we have to buy new machines for voting, everybody agrees that it has to have a paper component. And everybody agrees that it has to be auditable, which it's not now because we don't have an independent paper appropriate. We disagree when we go forward from those agreements about where does the paper component come, does it come first? Does the voter fill it out first or do you do the touch tone machine first and then you get a paper ballot that it becomes an auditable thing? But the voting machine will happen, decision will have to, has to happen this session. It will be very expensive. How many vendors out there are capable of producing 28,000 voting machines in the time that we have? Uh, which is very short before the presidential election primary of 2020. We have a year, basically, a year and a few months. But beyond those machine issues, what I think is also incredibly important for Georgia's image as we go forward in 2019 is do the voters trust our voting system? The federal courts don't trust our voting system if you put all the court orders together and I don't believe the voters trust and unless and I've called upon this publicly and will continue to do so there has to be, I recommend, I hope, that the Republican leadership will engage in a bipartisan discussion, bipartisan discussion that will give significant reform opportunities for the General Assembly to consider in 2019 that will show the voters of Georgia that we do believe but that there is trust here's, issues Here's here.
1: one. Ed, let me – I know you want to yeah. get a word in, and, and let me ask you a question and expand sure. on my question to get your point in. Sure. But, This issue of do we mark our ballots by hand and then have them tallied somehow optically, electronically, or do we cast it on a machine that then gives us a paper trail is one of the big questions that's going to be dealt with. Here's my concern. I don't think that—I know that there are people who argue for each one based on uh, security issues— I'm not going to be convinced one way or the other. Me personally, as a citizen of the state, that one offers more security in terms of the accuracy of my vote. And I don't know how legislators are going to prove to me which one is better.
4: I'm not I'm not so sure. Uh, You know, securities can take place and will be enhanced either way they go. But in terms of making sure that every person's vote counts Uh, The fact of the matter is the electronic measure in which there is after that a paper uh, confirmation and that's put into a ballot box will, quite frankly, make it make it easier to make sure that every vote counts. Why? Here's the problem. The same reason that we (laughs) did away with uh, the Chad system before, because particularly occasional voters. Are the ones most likely to mess up when they get a pencil or when they get a little punch card who will either not fill it out correctly or accidentally fill in two slots or whatever else the electronic system You know, given given the fact that we everybody in our society now utilize electronic systems in one way or the other, makes it easier for folks to to make sure that what vote, who they want to vote for, that vote will be counted.
1: All right. So here's our little mini focus group for Mary Margaret Oliver, who will actually end up having to vote on this. So Kevin and Audrey weigh in on this, both of you.
3: Well, I agree with what you're saying, because, you know, one of the things is we've become so jaded and we're so polarized that there is a. And there is a one of the lowest trust in government levels that we've had for a while. So here is the point that has to be made. You're absolutely right about bipartisanship. You have to build consensus. You have to let all the players sit at the table. You have to do a thorough job. And you have to get them to all come to an agreement and then go out and sell it to both sides. Yeah. You know. And then there has to be some sort of auditing. There has to be some sort of trust. And And this has to happen over time. So we build up... More trust in our institutions and processes. Yeah,
2: let me let me just say that uh, to me, it makes more sense to have the touch screens that produce paper for all kinds of reasons, including what Ed said, because people screw up the which they circle a candidate's name instead of filling in the bubble, all that, and it also lets people magnify if they have trouble mm-hmm. seeing. And there's a lot of advantages to the touch screen, but. I'm much more interested in where Representative Oliver was going with the machines and the debate over whether to spend 30 million or 110 million will be very concrete will occupy a lot of uh, attention but give me Representative Oliver three things the state needs to do to make citizens believe in our voting system
0: the exact match system has to go away the exact match signature match is what i'm talking about all the federal judges and i we are compiling all the federal judge orders and looking at where the consistencies are and i was in the courtroom when judge lee may heard the arguments about whether the exact signature match can i interrupt
2: you though is that not a partisan issue or do you see it as non-partisan because I, I,
0: I see it as nonpartisan because it's the most significant defect that the court articulated.
2: But Republicans don't necessarily
1: see it as bipartisan. Right. Yeah.
0: Let me finish, though. So you've okay. asked a really good question. The exact match signature is number one on my bu- bullet list. Uh, the issue about absentee ballots, the form of it, whether or not it's user-friendly, when does it have to be received? When does it have to be counted? And thirdly... What are we doing about the identity issue on absentee ballots, A, and B, we have to make our early voting system more uniform and consistent. I'm looking at the federal court orders, and the federal court orders, where I have a lot of, you know, my life began in federal court, (laughs) amazingly to me, As a young lawyer, federal judges look at things in depth. They're not elected, and they make decisions based on evidence and real problems. And we have a lot (laughs) of evidence and real problems from the 2018 session that has caused the voter to distrust our system. Number one, the
2: exact match. Number two...
0: Absentee ballot. When are they received? How are they counted?
4: And number three...
0: Early voting, consistency, and uh, and opportunity availability.
4: If I I can sort of add something to this and and to to what Mary Margaret is saying, and this is to my friends in the press, look closely at this turf war. Because what most people don't realize is that most of the problems that came out of the 2018 election were the result of the local election boards having certain difficulties. And right now, we have a very diversified system in in which our election system is heavily weighted in terms of the administration on the local governments. And in some respects, that's good. The bad part is, getting back to Mary Margaret's point, is the consistency. One county treating a absentee ballot the same way the, another county does. One county treating a exact match th- different from another county. Do you county. think that Republicans and,
2: will get behind that, though, but here, forcing
4: no, a standard upon well, all a, the counties? Uh, what I'm saying is that that's where the real battle is going to be. We've okay. talked about the election machines. That's the easy hurdle. It is the easy hurdle. The hard hurdle because, as Mary Margaret knows, the toughest wars that take place in the General Assembly are turf wars. I'm, and this is going to be a fight between the state— uh and i do expect folks coming in going look we need more uniformity and there's a great argument for more uniformity versus a lot of local governments going wait a minute you're taking away a lot of our power so that's going to be an interesting fight that takes place
0: i recommend that people take this as the smartest thing i can say today Jimmy Carter's book, Turning Point, about his first election to the school board, to the state senate in nineteen sixty three, following Baker v. Carr, gives all of us a textbook example of how voting can go awry and why the vote
1: Remind people what happened.
0: Oh, Baker v. Carr required one man, one vote in the rural areas. The county uni system got thrown out. Jimmy Carter ran for the state senate. It was his first Senate Rice. It was a complicated, changing legal scenario where the probate judge of Quitman County produced the voters for the opponent in alphabetical order. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, Audrey, Mary Margaret makes something clear to me. We should do a show on the county unit system and that change. What a great yes, historical and show that was! And Jimmy Judy
0: Carter was part yes, of it. Yes, yeah. he sure was. And he, it. he also credits again. the yeah.
2: newspaper for and
1: uncovering that
4: to the, mess. To, to that the three to governor of dispute.
2: All
1: right, I want to move on, but as I move on, Audrey, one last comment on this uh, uh, question of election reform in the legislative session. We've said it before on the show, but it is always worth repeating. Um, the national media uh, took a even bleaker view about how our election unfolded than did the media here in Georgia. Uh, I think we had some better understanding of the way things were unfolding. I think Brian Kemp did himself a disservice by not recusing himself uh, from the election process. All of those things uh, came together, but the national media continues to this day to really pile on uh, Georgia, and we have a black mark nationwide. It seems to me the state—forget about who's to blame, whether Kemp and his people did something wrong or not. The black eye is there, and it has the potential to hurt us uh, nationally.
3: Uh, That may be true. I would um, I would want to reiterate uh, your point. I was doing several interviews at the time um, with some national media and I tried to make the point because I actually have a very close friend who actually runs a county board of elections. I actually had some issues with an absentee ballot. So I know and got a lot of help. So they did. They focused on some issues where clearly they did not understand the process. Were there issues that were real? Were there potentially some suppression issues? Of course. But they did a disservice to the state by not reporting them as accurately as they could have.
0: My opinion. Brian Kemp has two major Georgia image issues that he has to behave himself in a way that he addresses, because there are two negative images. One is pointing a gun at a teenager, and two, being called the chief of voter suppression. If if Brian Kemp does not do anything about voter reform issues, that image of being chief of voter suppression, whether you believe the facts of it or not, is out there. And it is a negative image for Georgia that must be addressed and can only be addressed in my opinion by Brian. Uh,
2: Kevin, you get the last word. and We got a break. Here's what I would say. And I <laughs> guess I would direct this at the member of the legislature in the room is, look, we in 2020 in Georgia will be one of the most important states in the union. Let's make the changes so we don't look foolish. And let's act like we're one of the most important states. And you're talking in the
0: to a Democrat. <laughs> <laughs>
2: All right, let's get to our uh, final
1: break of the show. And uh, we'll do that and come back with more.
5: Hi, I'm Charles Shapiro. I'm the president of World Affairs Council of Atlanta. We put on programming here in Atlanta at the intersection where technology, politics, business, and the world collide. We underwrite with GPB, number one, because I love it, and secondly, because I think there's a huge overlap between your listeners and people who are interested in the world. I love that GPB opens a window on the world.
3: To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. On the next Fresh Air, we talk with Ben Stiller about directing the Showtime series Escape at Dannemora, based on the true story of two inmates in a New York maximum security prison who escaped with the help of a woman who worked there. Patricia Arquette just won a Golden Globe for her performance. Stiller has also been playing Michael Cohen on Saturday Night Live. Join
1: us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at three on GPB and gpbnews.org. About a week ago or so on this show, Ed Lindsay, we uh, talked about the fact that Hank Johnson, congressman from DeKalb County, had gone to, I think it was Friendship Baptist Church, and uh, given a little talk from the pulpit in which he compared Donald Trump to Adolf Hitler. But it wasn't just that. Uh, He went on and had some comments about supporters of President Trump's. Let's listen to what uh, Hank Johnson said.
2: Much like Hitler took over the Nazi Party, Trump has taken over the Republican Party. It's now known as the Trump Republican Party. Donald Trump's supporters are older, less educated, less prosperous, and they are dying early. Their lifespans are decreasing, and many are dying from alcoholism, drug overdoses, liver disease, or simply a broken heart caused by economic despair.
1: All right, before I give everybody a chance to weigh in on this, uh, Dan Crenshaw, the freshman congressman from Texas, uh, you'll— Remember that he was just on Saturday Night Live. He he wears an eye patch. He's a war veteran, and uh, Pete Davidson had made fun of him and was forced to apologize. And uh, he came on Saturday Night Live, Live. Saturday Night Live, Crenshaw did. So he started to gain a little attention for himself. Well, Crenshaw released a video in which he responded to Hank Johnson just yesterday.
5: Okay, Mister Johnson. President Trump is at a lot of things, but he's not Hitler. He didn't kill millions of people. He didn't start a world war. He didn't have any concentration camps. And to accuse him of being Hitler is intellectually dishonest. And frankly, it's a huge insult to the millions of Jews who died under Nazi Germany. But if you want to insult President Trump, at least you're picking on somebody your own size. At least you're picking on somebody who can fight back. But you went on to insult, degrade, and demean tens of millions of Americans who voted for him. This is a cowardly form of politics. No matter how much I will disagree with you in Congress, I will never, ever insult the good Americans who voted for you. These people are exercising their right and their voice the only way they can, which is through their vote. And you use your public platform to insult and demean them. This is not the behavior we expect from a member of Congress. So I'll leave you with this. Pick on somebody your own size, pick on me if you like. My office will be right down the hall from yours. I'll see you in Washington.
1: So, Ed Lindsay, of course, first of all, comparing someone to Adolf Hitler is never a good, good strategy. Idea. No. <laughs> but beyond that, uh, well, go ahead. Make your comments. Well, uh, well
5: actually, I'm going to
4: use one of your quotes that, I've, that quite frankly, I've used multiple times when members of my own party have strayed across okay. the line and when members of the Democratic Party stray across the line. But I love this quote, and I've, I've held on to it for years, Bill, is back when you were uh, a leader with the ADL. Uh, It's dangerous for all Americans if you can't have civilized debates. You can't invoke one of the most heinous criminals in the world when debating politics. That's a, that's a damn fine quote uh, that, that you had, Bill. Bill yeah. and, and, and I have, Bill. And I have held on to that quote Thank you. for years. Anytime someone strays across well, the line. Well,
1: beyond that, here's, here's why, Mary Margaret, look, uh, this this conjures up Hillary Clinton with her basket of deplorables. It's the same thing all over again. Ed,
0: please send me that quote. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I work on a daily basis to censor myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I try not to say things that I know are problematical, and I'm sure other politicians do that. Uh, I would not have said what Hank Johnson said. And um, Hillary Clinton earned in, uh, it earned the bad vibe, the bad response to her calling, name-calling Trump voters. That's, that should have been a lesson there. It's certainly a lesson for me. You don't disparage voters. You don't disparage jury mo- members. You know, you never say bad things. No. You don't disparage Because yeah. what Cause, do you lose when you do that?
4: Yeah, you lose you, them all. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have a, I have some of my best writings are contained in a folder that I've instructed my secretary, if I drop dead, she's to go into my computer and delete. Because <laughs> these, are, these are things that I have written that I have never sent out or published. And, and they are. They are really well-written, and they should never go anywhere, and somebody should be doing that in Hank Johnson's what? office. That's I, all uh, all I have
2: my own version of that. <laughs> you never insult a reader. Yeah. Same thing. I mean, I get a lot of uh, a lot of emails, and as you might imagine, not all of them are they're laudatory they're and flattering. Sweet. Yeah, but uh, you don't. You have a constituency, and you have it for a reason, and you need to respect it, so, and you need to understand it. Yeah,
1: Audrey. So you know this. You could see this as a little squabble. That's for us, kind of a delicious awful thing to dig into. But but I one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it is it does strike me that this alerts us to one of the dangers that Democrats could be facing as they take control of the US House that they overreach you know, this is Michelle Obama says when they go low, we go high. Uh, Rashida Talib, the freshman congresswoman who uh, talked about impeaching Trump and then used a, an expletive, got herself into a little trouble, although she was defended by people like uh, Speaker Pelosi who said, look, you know, she wasn't any worse than what Trump has said. Still, Democrats are going to have to watch themselves if they want to maintain what they'll see as the moral high ground in their battles with Trump.
3: Yeah. So a couple things. Number one, we teach students in applied politics. If you're going to have a political career in this day and age, you know that whatever you say has the potential to be there for the next thousand years. And it will be used and used. And I expect that what um, what Representative Johnson said will be used to put a framework around Democrats in general, he is going to be someone who, on the other side, is going to be heard by a lot of people. And the Democrats are listening to that and going, again, why can't the Democrats be messaging on this is what's wrong? He could have said he could have been critical of Trump without going in that direction and done a better job of communicating to his um, audience. let
0: Let me push back just a tiny bit. People are upset out there. Democrats are suffering from a whole lot of heartbreak over the loss of Stacey Abrams. The firebrand personalities that are coming to Washington, that are coming to the state capitol, are representing an authentic view, authentic view of how people feel. When I talk about censoring myself, I really don't want to say in extreme detail what I think of Donald Trump's behavior. It's bad. There is no responsible human being in any arena where I operate that behaves as badly as he does. I goes. think that's
1: a really interesting comment. There is an authenticity that we see, certainly in Washington so far right now, with people yep. like Alexandria
4: And I call, like Ocasio- Cortes, I call it a heartbreak. I call it a heartbreak. Let me step in, because to some degree I'm going to agree with Mary Margaret. Authenticity is good, right. and sometimes showing real passion about an issue is good. It's the analogies <laughs> that you try to draw uh, well, that get dangerous. And, and there are, you know, Mary Margaret, and I may disagree on some of what Trump has done, but for her to simply sit here and go, I think what he does is bad, that's, that's authentic, that's fair. Yeah. And then we can have an honest debate on that issue as to what he's done right and what he's done wrong. But once you cross the line— into uh, to drawing an analogy between one of the most heinous mass murderers of all time and and someone else's political party, you, you know, you make it awfully difficult to come back right. to the middle. But you write don't, them don't. out
3: of the conversation. That's my point. That, They're not that's a part it. of the conversation right. anymore. I,
4: I, thank
1: you. I want to get one last subject in because <clears throat> we're only hours away from the president of the United States going on television to uh, tell the American people why he needs border security. A steel, steel beams, a fence, a wall. We don't know exactly what he calls it these days. But I want to start this conversation by uh, pointing out that, that the president has on a number of occasions now talked about how former presidents have told him that they would do the same thing and they wish they had done it. Uh, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton uh, have already pushed back. And now, Jimmy Carter, through the Carter Center uh, Twitter, has said, nope, never told him that, don't support the wall. This morning on the T- Today Show, uh, Hallie Jackson, the NBC correspondent, had an interview with Mike Pence, and she tried to get Pence to explain, who were these presidents? Here's what, how that went down.
3: Which <clears> former presidents <throat> told President Trump, as he said, that he should have built a wall? All their representatives have denied that that was the case.
4: Well, you, 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 I
3: know the president has said that that was his impression uh, from previous administrations, previous presidents. I know, uh, I, I know. I've seen clips of previous presidents talking about the importance of border security, the importance of addressing the issue of illegal immigration. That's and different look, from telling the but, president, though, right? But look, you know, honestly, the American people, the American people want us to address this issue.
1: Oh, Kevin Riley, wouldn't you love to have to explain President Trump to interviewers?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, I agree. But I actually think that Trump has managed. To get the upper hand here, I mean, the president is going to be live in prime time, being able to talk directly to the nation. Well, Nancy and Pelosi
1: he, and 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 uh, Chuck Schumer will be able to give a response. But
2: too. late last week, the conversation was all about the shutdown, and now it's all about the wall. I believe that favors the president. Uh, I think that's a really interesting point
1: to make, um, and I would we we were short on time to do this, but let me turn to the political scientist, Audrey. I've argued on the show a couple times now that Trump's message is very clear and very simple. We need a wall because we have to have border security. The Democrats' message to me has been we have to stop Donald Trump from building his wall. That does not strike me as the best way to win public opinion, just saying, this for us is about stopping Trump. I haven't heard the Democrats say, here are all the measures that we believe ought to be put in place instead of a wall. Here's specifically why a wall doesn't work. In other words, I do agree with Kevin that the president seems to have a simpler and clearer message, and the most recent polling suggests the president's gaining a little ground in terms of people thinking he is or isn't responsible for the shutdown.
3: So let me say this. The president actually doesn't have a very clear message. It's all the people who speak for him after he talks or tweets that go out and <laughs> true, uh, uh, give, give the message. Because if you look at his Twitter, the border's secure. We're, we've been building the wall. Things are great. America's better now. Oh, wait, we have a crisis. We do have a crisis. He's actually going to be asking for humanitarian aid because of the crisis that he helped create. So there is so much to unpack in this. But, but Democrats do need to message. But Mary better.
1: Merkel, what is the Democrats' message other than we're not going to let Trump have his wall?
0: My message is that we have somebody unqualified to be president of the United well, States, okay. and he's <laughs> taking the entire country he's taking the entire country down. This and debate is a negative wrong. debate. And this is a negative debate that's taking the entire country down. And the response: How do you deal with somebody who's irrational? Uh, David Brooks on PBS last week at the end of the Friday session says, do you deal with somebody because you can negotiate with them or you you don't because you can't? And I don't know which is true, but it doesn't look like you can negotiate with somebody who lies the way he lies.
4: Here's the bottom line. The polls that are coming out are right, uh, in which they blame the American people are blaming both Congress and the president. The bottom line is the, the issues that we have in front of us are all fixable. Do we need greater border security? Yes. Do we need to do something about the DACA kids? Yes. Do we need to come up with a humane way of dealing with refugees who wish to come to this country? Yes. Do we need to figure out a way to work with countries to keep their citizens from wanting to flee their countries to come here? Yes. These are all, not easily, but these are all fixable problems. And quite frankly, each side seems to want to retrench into their talking points rather than come to the middle the, and make but, and, and but and make but a decision. they had
3: an agreement. They had an yeah, agreement. They had an agreement. They had an agreement and someone yeah. reneged on that. Multiple multiple times. Times. And I'm not, like I said, I'm
4: not I'm I'm not letting anybody <laughs> off the hook
1: right. uh, yeah. And in the meantime with about thirty seconds we have left, Kevin, we always have to bring this back home. The state of Georgia, like many other states, is suffering. And Georgia suffers more than most because of the enormous the military amount bit. of federal revenue that pours in to this state. This hurts. It hurts the farmers. It will eventually hurt people who have SNAP benefits here. So there's a very human side to this story that we shouldn't let be forgotten because of the politics.
2: Right. But I do think the president's message has been able to overwhelm that. I Mm -hmm. just think that's what's actually happening out there. All right. We are completely out of time uh for uh, can we go another hour? we need yeah, more time. Well, well, terry, time
1: terry gross just won't let us <laughs> keep going no, she has terry. to get fresh air on the air
4: and someday Kevin, we want to be on <laughs> the Friday Riley show. Riley
1: <laughs> <and> <laughs> Lindsay, yes. mary margaret oliver audrey haynes thank you for today's show we're back here tomorrow again our sole guest speaker of the georgia house david ralston we'll see you uh, jim galloway and i will at two o'clock tomorrow afternoon